The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hey everyone, this is Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast comes to you from the Society of Economic Geologists. We are sponsored by ALS Goldspot Discoveries, a technology company that believes in the power of combining expert geoscientists with data analysis and artificial intelligence. I'm Ann Thompson, a partner in PetroScience Consultants, and I'm your host for this episode, where we're going to talk about spectral and geochemical data acquisition and analysis in the mining industry, right from calibration issues to the big wins for our projects, if we get it all right. How do we link the whole rock chemistry that we can do now with the spectroscopy and really create, you know, the much more powerful alteration models and, and maps of minerals. Right. 90% of my work will be based around chemistry, especially for acid digest ICP chemistry, and maybe maybe 10% is spectroscopy. Okay. But it's it's a, an important 10%? Well, yeah. Well, the stuff that I'm doing now is super interesting, Anne. So I'm really interested in converting weight percent of elements into estimated weight percent of minerals. So it's a mass balance calculation. Yep. And mathematically, it's impossible because there's more variables than constraints. Right? So it's only ever going to be an estimation method. So I need some independent data set to limit the number of minerals that I put into each calculation. Now, we can do that with visual logging if you think you're a good enough logger. Which some people think they are. <laughs> some people generally believe they are. But having the SWIR data really, really helps. And especially having the wavelengths of the white micas. Using the wavelengths of the white micas as a proxy for the Shermac substitution constrains how much aluminium, potassium, iron, magnesium, etc. you should allocate to white micas and that makes a big difference to the mineral percentages that you estimate yeah so that that link between the swir and the chemistry is really important for what i'm trying to do and i i think this is the most interesting thing i've ever done in my career as a geochemist is trying to make quantitative mineralogy models from the routine data that we collect that was scott halley of mineral mapping based in tasmania many of you may know him we'll get back to him in our last segment today our first guest worked on the amazing Takataka porphyry in Argentina. I checked in with Sebastian Benavides, currently Discovery Manager, Peru and Ecuador for Anglo-American. We talked about the role of spectral data in generative exploration and the unusual alteration patterns at Takataka. Sebastian is Peruvian and from a mining family, so perhaps not surprising he knew he wanted to be a geologist from an early age. How did I get here? Well, I won't, I won't go too far in the past, but I will mention that I wanted to be a geologist since I was like eight. And, you know, mining has been in my family for many, many years. And I have many uncles and family involved in, in the mining industry in, in different ways. My father is a geologist as well and got a lot of exposure to the mining industry since I was young. And that is something that I'm grateful for. As soon as I could, I traveled to, to the U.S. And, and went to university at Colorado School of Mines. 
and came back to Peru after that and started working at Pembroke on a some exploration project in southern Peru and then moved to a gold mine in northern Peru with Consorcio Minero Horizonte at a mine called Paracoy. I uh, did some mine geology for about a year and then got the call from First Quantum. And that was really a pivotal moment in my career, I think. They were recruiting for this international graduate program. And I joined that. They had just entered Peru with the purchase of Hakira a few years before, and they wanted somebody from Peru in that program. And it was an amazing opportunity. I got to work with great people and led by Mike Christie, who's always been a great mentor to me. But I got some experience in Peru, in Hakita, then was shipped to Zambia, was working at Enterprise and Sentinel when Sentinel was being built. Then first quantum purchased Cobre Panama and spent about a year there doing brownfields exploration and then came back to Peru and started working a lot in generative geology. So that's been sort of my strength. Since then, I've been doing generative geology for four or five years. First Quantum helped me out with doing my master's through during that time at, at Codes. And this is when I got to do some work at Takataka. And I did my master's in economic geology at University of Tasmania. And then started taking the management route in 2018. I was already sort of acting as, as expression manager for Peru, but in 2019, it was official. And then in 2021, moved to, to Anglo exploration manager for Peru and then eventually for Peru and Ecuador as well. But it's been great. And in the midst of that, I've been participating with teaching here in Peru at the Catholic University of Peru. I've done that for five years. I actually just finished that, but teaching some exploration program courses for last year's students. Well, that transfer of skill is is huge and, and knowledge to be able to share that back with, with others is just vital because that's the future. Well, it's, it's a future and it's and it's a big area of concern as well, because we, we need to attract top talent into the mining industry. Yeah. And for that, we really need to think about our purpose as mining companies and how yeah. we attract young talent to really want to do technical careers in earth sciences and you know applied to the mining industry. So you want to tell us why we should all be in Lima in early May? We have to note that you are the chair of ProExplo. <laughs> yes, of course. So ProExplo is, is a conference that is done every two years in Peru. It's focused on exploration and trying to promote scientific thought around exploration, to promote investment in exploration, and to showcase some new projects that are coming up in the region, etc. It's become one of the biggest, if not the biggest, conference in South America with regards to exploration. It's going to be in May, so 8th to 10th of May of 2023. We have a really good program set up with some excellent keynote speakers, including yourself. Thanks for that. And and we're going to have Mary Hitzman and Massimo Charadia and John Thompson and Stephanie Morosek, who's going to give us an update on, on Antamina, which is going to be really cool. And oh. uh, Dave Cook, Jeff Hedenquist, Bill Chavez, Cyril Shelmichus, they're all going to be there giving other courses and talks. And Antonio Arribas is giving a course as well. So it's going to be a really good opportunity for people to attend good courses. We're going to have some field visits to some mines in southern Peru and, and in central Peru, led by keys, world-class geos. And um, it's a good opportunity, I think, for any junior company and prospectors also to showcase their projects. We're going to have a core shack with some opportunities for people to take core and show to geologists from everywhere in the region. And part of it is going to be virtual. So there's going to be a virtual membership as well for people who can't travel to Peru so that they will get a live stream of the talks and the technical program. 
Yeah, but great. we would like to encourage everyone that is interested in exploration and particularly interested in exploration in the Americas. It's gonna, it's a place to be. It's a place to be in May 2023. So we hope we have a, a very nice gathering there. Excellent. I am excited and looking forward to, to being there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about your masters because Taka Taka is this amazing porphyry that you can see with Landsat images <laughs> effectively, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was the first quantum connection to be working there. So in 2014, after the purchase of Taka Taka by First Quantum, I was part of the team that went and spent a month sort of looking through the geology and seeing what, what we understand, what we don't, what are, what are the key questions we have about this project. And one of them is the one that I decided to tackle on my master's. In Taka Taka, it's an extremely weird sort of scenario. I mentioned that I have a passion for the generative geology and big scale geology, right? And you have this place, which is back in the back part of the Eocene Oligocene Chilean belt, and it's been hit by magmatism. Magmatism from the Silurian, you have magmatism from the Permian, and you have these rhyolite dikes that are cutting through the Permian, and you actually have an epithermal system nearby that is Permian, just all in the same spot. And, and then you have this oligocene porphyry dike that are coming in and mineralizing right on the same spot, right? And you talk about sort of big scales, crustal things and focus of magmatism. And it's really cool to, to see it in that sense. And, you know, we're looking at that question that we still had was what you see from surface is that the oligocene porphyries don't actually hold any grade. There's an immense amount of veining. It's all stockwork veining, quartz veining, but it's barren. And all of the mineralization is hosted in the Silurian granite as a host rock, the, the Takataka battery. And there was, you know, the potassic alteration was associated with the quartz veins, but not associated with grade, even in the drill holes. And then you had all of the grade in what was called the philic alteration, and it was also acidic alteration on the host rock. And we knew it was a ligocene because we had dated the mineralization and we knew it was just related to this to the system. So there was a question about like, why is everything, you know, the potassium doesn't have the ore, it's, it's hosted in the philic, is it has to do with depth of emplacement, there's a lot of different hypotheses. And what we did observe is that there were two types of sericite, and they were being locked as the green sericite and the white sericite. Right. So just on the basis of color, you can distinguish those two kinds of mica. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the green sericite is, you know, grayish green. And right. and that's that's something that has been reported in other places as well. There's several examples in Chile and other places. But what I wanted to go is, is it, is it really hosted in philic alteration or is it something different? What's, what, what is the difference? What is a green sericite versus a white sericite? What are the two events? What is the relationship with mineralization? Because right. we knew the green sericite was related to ore. Then we started characterizing the sericite first. So what tools did you use to characterize it? We took a bunch of samples that characterized sort of whole deposit, and we created mounds that we used for different uh, tools that were used during this process. The first one was spectral, right? And it was, it was point spectra so that we knew that we were getting right on the exact same position. Right. But it was still point spectral data from a telescope. It was the same piece of rock that we took to the SEM to see textures, and we could see the different textures between the white mica and these green-grayish Right. And there was a first sort of big observation that was that the texture of the white one was its long, blady, very Muscovite looking minerals. And the other one, you'd see it. And if you didn't know what you were seeing, you'd see the texture of like a shreddy biotype. It was really shreddy. And actually, you could, you could see the, the, the shapes of potential remnant biotypes in there. And then we took that also to a laser ablation and we got the geochemistry like with laser for those okay. different areas. So we could get the geochemistry of a mineral. Geochemistry. So then with that, we were able to characterize the green grayish mica was fengite. 
which had a clear texture and that was probably replacing secondary biotitis potassic alteration that pre-existed in the area, but it was less pervasive and it was actually still had the texture. Right. And the muscovite that we could see from the geochemistry and we could see also from the spectral data, we're looking at 22 hundred wavelengths differences and a couple other scalars. Then it's pretty clear that we're seeing different components of, of mica, right? So we're able to, to separate the two of them and characterize them completely. And this opened the door to, okay, well, maybe this is actually overprinting potassium alteration that we had not seen before. And we actually, you know, after that, we did some potassium staining and there, it was pretty clear that there, there had been some potassium flooding in the areas where there was green sericite. And we were able to take that back you know, once we started plotting everything, we, we did some pretty cool plots where we were coloring by the spectral uh, scalars, right? Because the spectral data was the only thing that we had that we could take back to a project scale, right? So that we had spectral measurements every meter for every drill hole. That's such a key observation because right? you're not going to have the mineral chemistry on if you have to have a proxy for it. Exactly. So we're doing the characterization on the geochemistry and everything, but always using the spectral data. And it was giving us the same information, but right. now we had it grounded. And we could take it to project scale. And it was pretty clear that you could see that the area where the ore was, was related to this fungite alteration that was replacing potassium alteration that pre-existed. And some key observations was that the fungite was clearly in balance with the chocolate and wherever muscovite was coming in, we could see, depending on the amount of the muscovite alteration, how the chalcopyrite was being converted to pyrite. Okay. And in some extreme cases, even to pyrite, boronite, chalcocyte, covalite, higher sulfidation states, I guess. So it, it really helped us understand the basic sort of formation of the deposit, right? And the, what we were seeing as the potassium alteration was basically a barren core. And the outside was still potassium alteration, just that it has been overprinted by this thingitic alteration. And so the calcopyrite mineralization was still coincident with the fungite, you think? And not part of the potassic, which is then overprinted. That is something that, that we were not able to resolve, but but it was definitely in balance with it. So it was not more destructive. How much came with the potassic and how much came with the fungitic alteration? It was still unclear, at least from the work that we did there. You know, you have the silito graph where the fluids, as they drop in temperature and pH, you go from a potassic alteration to what he called the SC alteration, right? Sericite chloride. And we're wondering, like, is this analogous to that before being true sort of philic, really acid fluid? Fengite, the main control, I guess, for fengite is, is pH more than temperature in terms of how it's supposed to be formed. So in many projects, fengite has been described always on the outside of the system because it is sort of as the acid fluids buffer, the muscovite turns into fengite at a lower temperature. Right. But you can still form it at higher temperatures as you transition from a more neutral fluid to more acid, as you move from potassium to phyllic alteration. And that was, I think, a, a key observation that just from looking at literature, we saw that at Pelambre, Samata, and everything, they, they talk about this green sericide veins with green sericide halos that are associated to war. Right. And they're still at that level. And then you have examples like Highland Valley or Butte, where it's associated to the outer part of the system. Right. So it's really, it, you know, it has some implications in terms of how you vector know your system. Is that the moral of that story? I mean, yeah, yeah. there are things we see from place to place. It's not necessarily going to follow the pattern that you expect, exactly. which is one of the great things also with the hyperspectral is that you can ground yourself. And another key question, and, and as you take it to sort of how we use the spectra, is why do you form fungite instead of forming chloride or doing sericide chloride alteration? It could be because of the host rock. It could be 
because of the depth of the basement. We don't have the answer to that. Yeah. It worked. It worked really well. Exactly. So now as a discovery manager for Anglo-American, we've got exploration teams out there. Are you regularly using spectral data or how does it feature in your workflows as in exploration? I think I think spectral data, and I wouldn't just, just talk about my teams, but I think in general, it's become now, it's an important tool in the toolkit. And you need to have experience with it. You need to understand it. And we use it, you know, every every program that I've been involved since, I don't know, 2014 <laughs> or so in the past, it, you know, we collect spectral data, be it on, on drill holes, on surface. And how you use it is key point. In some, in some projects, it becomes really, really important, especially as if you're working on transition areas between porphyry and, and epithermal transitions, it right. becomes really important to try to understand your system. It's been very helpful for vector We've used it in some cases as generative tools, sort of as using hyperspectral on big areas and and to try to see what different anomalies look like with more detail so that you can focus better your generative work. So we use it at different scales and very commonly in most of the work we do. Right. Are you using scanner core scanning systems, of which there are at least, I don't know, three, four out there now? Yeah, that to me is is a technology that, that, yeah, it's being used. I think it has a place and time. I'm not a big proponent of doing it from the first drill hole in a very early stage project because one is expensive for an early stage project, but it's logistically complicated as well. But once you once you get going on the projects, it becomes a, a very useful tool when you have complicated alterations, when you have questions that need to be asked that hyperspectral core scanning tools can address and help you, right? But but it generates a lot of data and finding the right way to process the data for your project, for the questions that you have becomes key so that you're not just overwhelmed to a point where you don't use it at all. It's a question that we should ask. The industry needs to ask, right? Because we're putting a lot of money and time and effort into these, this process. Yeah, and it's a lot of data and we always need to figure out sort of what, what do we do with it, right? Because it's always cool to look at the image and you're looking at the piece of rock and you know, clicking around and seeing exactly sort of what mineral it is. But if you have tens of thousands of meters of drill core and you put in a leapfrog project and how do you manage this information to bring it to a scale that you can use, that you can process? Yeah. And that it can address the concerns that you have for your project. And yeah. that's a project per project. Right, right. Answer, right. How do you consolidate it into useful information? I think there's there's a key point in this, and, and this goes for all spectral data. I think that it can't be just done as a thing on its own that's giving you the answer and just takes away the logging and takes away the geochemistry. It's, it's another tool in the toolbox. It's an important one. But especially if you're processing the data, it's so important to have looked at the rocks to understand sort of the variabilities training on how you take point spectra. And depending on what you're trying to do, if you have a a particular question about something like the salvage of a vein, then of course, you're going to target that when you measure. But when you're doing big programs where you're measuring every half a meter or every meter or something like that, the importance of sort of one point versus the... the average or trends that you're seeing, because where you take the measurement, it can vary differently if you take it sort of 10 centimeters away from one point from the other, right? And and the the analysis that you get is going to be very different. So taking enough points, training the people who are taking the measurements so that if what you're doing is a big scale program to try to see trends, to try to avoid the interesting parts and try to go for the boring part, probably, and trying to see the the different alterations, it's helpful. And you need to understand this. And, And again, 
goes back to what your initial question is. What are you trying to answer? What are you trying to get with the spectral data? Right. You know, we could make this work really well with some adjustments on how we interpret the spectra, right? So yeah. that, that you can't take away. No, no, you're spot on. It requires thinking. And it also does require working through for any project, what, what is going to be the best process, right? Yeah. It, has to, it has to be the right tool for the challenges you have. And, it, and you can tailor the type of spectral work you want to do. You can tailor sort of the program that you want to do in particular based on that. In your dream world, what would you be able to do differently, easily? <laughs> yeah, so I think that's something that will be really cool is when the hyperspectral world becomes more accessible, I guess, in a sense of being able to, you know, I've seen projects that operate with scanning machines and they're automatically there and helping, you know, helping the logger with their logging on point and all of that. But that helps a lot. It's really useful. But of course, you need to be at a level of a project to be able to finance such an operation that you have enough drill core coming in to make it worth it and all of that. But trying to take the hyperspectral, I guess, technologies to accessible tools that we can do on a more regular basis on, on early field programs and early drill campaigns and things like that would be very helpful. We need to work on training people on this, on spectral work and, and understanding it a lot. I think a lot of people... You know, it's it's seen as geophysics, right? That that yeah. people understand it's like, oh, like I don't I don't need to fully understand it. Somebody's going to process this and give me an answer, and right. that doesn't work for geophysics, and it doesn't work for for spectral data. I think geologists need to train, and we need to work on sort of building the knowledge base on how spectral analysis is done. These are things that need to become common knowledge in geos using spectral data so that we're able to query it just as geochemistry has gone through the same process and now geologists in general are way more sort of savvy in geochemistry and understand these things and has to go down a similar road i think I wanted to check in with Sam Scher of LKI Consulting. She's helping companies navigate data collection and analysis, linking spectroscopy and geochemistry. Our conversation focuses on what exploration geologists need to know in order to be sure they have quality data sets to work with. So I'm really excited to have you, Sam, here on the, on the Discovery to Recovery. I actually also have my tea. So just to, I just love to, it. <laughs> just to do a shout out to Geochemist Tea and your very own podcast, because I've listened to a couple of those. And I think it's a great niche you're filling with that series. And more people ought to be listening, for sure. Yeah. And if I could give myself a plug for that, too, a big thing that I've done for this podcast is I really wanted it to be for students and for people that are early career to be able to know who we are and to ask questions. How do we get into this? How do we do this? You know, what is the path towards doing something? And I'm just really thankful also for all the people that have come onto my show because it's really satisfying. It's a great way to reach a lot of people for sure. So first of all, though, tell me, I mean, here you are, you run a podcast, you're running a consulting business, you're doing geochemistry. Tell me what about Sam before all that? How did you get to this point? I grew up in New York on Long Island in this place that's all you go to college to become either a doctor, teacher, lawyer, or go into business. And so when I told my parents that I was interested in pursuing geology, they nearly, you know, fell out their seats. You know, what are you going to do with this? How are you going to make a career of this? Are you going to be a teacher? And I was like, no, I'm going to work in mining. And I went to McGill University in Montreal in Canada. And then after I took an economic geology class with the infamous Willie Williams Jones, 
I was like, Willie, I'm sold geochemistry, economic geology. Tell me, how do I get, get into this? At the time, I also had a lot of applications into professors to do a master's in volcanology. Okay. And he's like, Sam, the Kawaijin project is ready. And I know that that doesn't really resonate with many people, but my master's was on an active volcano in Indonesia called Kawaijin. And it was just the crux of economic geology. It was a, an actively forming high sulfidation epithermal system. There was tons of geochemistry, forward modeling. So yeah, so doing all that and then finally getting into industry. And yeah, I was just doing like basic junior geology things, but I always noticed how nobody was touching the geochemistry. And then later on, when I started working in Chile as an exploration geochemist for a company, my boss there got me in touch with Chris Ben and then Peter Winterburn. And I had like active mentorship through all these different people and, and programs and stuff. And then that's really how I got into it. And then the final piece being working for CoreScan, which is a hyperspectral imaging provider. Excellent. Yeah. And then you chose to go back to the US and start your own company. I really had wanted to pursue doing this integration of hyperspectral and geochemistry because they talk to each other so well. And it was just this niche in the market that really needs to be explored. And I really hope that as I continue that other people start doing the same thing that I am. That's awesome. I really want to talk to you mostly about the basics of hyperspectral work, and then we'll come back at the end and tie into geochemistry. But the spectroscopy is really key here. So just talk to us about scale first. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And I think I have to credit this a lot to working with Brigitte Martini, who's now Anglo's principal spectroscopist. She coined the term, I believe, the spectral ecosystem. And really what this means is that whether you're working satellite, airborne, drone to point data, and point data being, you know, AC, TerraSpec, or Express, that kind of thing, to line systems, so thinking about Highlogger, to the imaging systems, so to the laboratory nanoscale of hyperspectral, all of these data sets, they talk to each other. And it's really when choosing the one that you want to work with is about understanding the scale of what you're trying to do. And so really when you're deciding on the tool and what company, so what provider that you guys want to use, it's really crucial to understand these slightly complicated, but really basic concepts of these hyperspectral systems. So spatial resolution, spectral resolution, band configuration, signal noise ratio, the wavelength range that you want to work in. So if you're an iron ore, you definitely need a system with the veneer. Right. So, yeah, and in order, exactly. And so in order <laughs> to pick the system that's right for your project, you have to first really define your questions to answer any specific questions that you will have. You actually did mention the nanoscale, and I was going to bring up the microscope instruments as USGS mm. has has developed or are using. I mean, these spectrometers that are on microscopes are used in biology, and yes. their SWIR is used in biology, and there's used. It's, it's the other thing I think to remember about spectroscopy is that it has a very broad applications. You're completely right, and I from working so long in hyperspectral now, I've gotten to be friends with some of the people that have their own businesses where they create their own cameras, hyperspectral cameras. Yeah, cool. Just, very, just very a, cool. It's <laughs> such a weird thing, but yeah, they work, they work in agriculture, they work in medical imaging, they do so many other things. So we got all these different kinds of instruments at different scales. Let's maybe just talk about the places where we are getting rock knowledge or body knowledge and being able to link to geochemistry very directly. So what do we need to do to collect the best data? Yeah, it's such a 
Such an important point. I would say that in my time in this whole hyperspectral space, I think the biggest issue is really that not enough geologists are educated and why it's important that we have controlled data collection environments. So for example, you want your spectrometers to be at a constant and cool temperature because not doing this can have huge outcomes on the data itself, making sure, for instance, that there's no dust, that we're only using the sun or quartz halogen bulbs to collect the data, asking questions about co-registration. There's so many pieces to this puzzle. Another thing that I think is really interesting to mention, when I was working with Numat with CoreScan, one of the things that they introduced to me was the concept of a field duplicate. So with your hyperspectral imaging providers, you know, you'll be doing, you'll be calibrating, you'll be testing for instrument drift. So that's kind of what you can think of as, you know, your standards, if you will, that you would have in a geochemical survey. But in geochemistry, we do our field duplicates. So they had this initiative, they put together a tray that had samples of these known compositions. We locked it in place, we scanned it once a day. And I really love this concept so much that I introduced it at a current program that I'm at, just to make sure that everything is above board and that we're not having drastic changes in mineral composition positions, for instance, because the people I'm working with right now, one of the things they want to do so much, it's a porphyry. They would love to be able to use white mica chemistry, but you know, if there's instrument drift, if we see all the time that on our field duplicate, that the white micas one day look like a paragonite and the next day they look like a fengite, well, then there's an instrument drift problem. And then you kind of have to throw out that data set. So sure, it's a white mica, but is the chemistry good? No. Obviously that's the thing that we're all working towards these days is great to know what the mineral is, but getting that information that can can be vital on the mineral chemistry is is pretty important. Yeah. And I think to just educate people a little bit about it, I have to say it's always a huge concern to think about potential drift and calibration issues. So just for everybody to know calibration, all it's doing is it's aiming to minimize systematic or this instrument sources of error. And you're doing this by confirming the accuracy of the instrument and monitoring the repeatability of these measurements. And so the entire spectral communicate, we all came together and said that they're going to use Spectralon to calibrate the instruments and make sure that a kaolinite is a kaolinite is a kaolinite, no matter where in the world we are. And these Spectralons, these are usually that white plate that you see, right. you can get them to be darker, but they're these white plates. And it's so crucial that they're not dirty. We don't touch them with our fingers with our finger oils because then they're no longer perfect reflectors. And then for acid drift, and if anybody has worked with point data system, you'll see that these hardware and software manuals, they recommend recalibration every 15 minutes. It's so easy to do. And the step itself takes no longer than a minute, maybe a minute and a half. And it's just so important to know too that the spectrometers are really prone to drift and the performance of these, of the electronic, the mechanical, and the optical components of the spectrometers, they vary with temperature, causing changes in signal noise ratio, shifts in wavelength positions. So regular calibration is so important to monitor these changes and deliver this really high quality and repeatable results. And like we talked about before, the compositional parameters, like if you're not measuring your drift and you're calibrating incorrectly, then you can just throw this out. You'll never be able to use use, especially everybody loves the white mic of the wavelength. You'll never be able to use it. You just, you just can't. But then in addition to calibration and drift, like there's actually two other points that I want to make. If you're working with an imaging company, for instance, one thing that's so important to talk to them about is co-registration, which means just that if you, for any given image pixel, all the spectral bands have measured the reflectance from the same point on the material surface. And so for any given band in the image, all pixels have measured the same reflectance and wavelength. And these errors can cause both spectral and spatial dimensions of the data cube to be wrong. 
even a small co-registration error can lead to really large errors overall. So this is like something that it's just for me, it just kills me when people can't give you a direct answer on this co-registration. And it's just, it seems so in the weeds, but it's just, it's so, so important. If people can think about that one as a question to ask. So we have taken great data sets. We've done all our calibrating and we know we have got great data and it's clean and it's not noisy and lots of it. So what are we doing in the next step? Well, what, what's it going to do for us? The most important thing to understand here is where both data sets shine and where they can supplement and complement each other. And sometimes with certain minerals, you can identify them with your geochemistry, but other times it's just much more helpful to have the combination of the two. Right. And I think that the best point we can make here is that these data sets are complementary and it's not about choosing one over the other. And we think about our ore elements as the asset to a company, but truly our geochem and our mineralogical information can be part of this company's greatest asset because we know what we're mining and what we're encountering throughout the entire mining value chain. Yeah. And I think it's just so important to be thinking about the scale of your study and what your questions are. So if we're looking to have an understanding about our rocks on a regional scale, a well-planned you know, rock sampling geochem study that utilizes some point data in addition to airborne could be a really cool study. If we're thinking about understanding the ore body from a really holistic knowledge perspective, then perhaps a cross-section or two throughout the ore body with whole rock data, plus some imaging. And the imaging itself as well, there's so much that being done in the data science space right now that you know understanding your texture can be super important for the way in which you're going to mine it. But after figuring out if it makes sense to continue to use the whole rock versus just using a four acid. If you can use point data just as effectively as you can use imaging, then you just have to take that on board and you go right. forward with your, your next set of decisions. So for me, it's all about that initial question. And then from there, deciding what makes sense and where's our starting point. Orientation studies are always going to be critical about how, not only how the data that you're necessarily collecting, but how you're going to handle the data load as you collect it. And who is your in-house champion? Are you going to work with a consultant that's going to train your geologist? What data science techniques are you going to work with towards answering your questions? There's not going to be a situation ever where you're going to say geochemistry or hyperspectral didn't work. The only reason that it quote didn't work is because you didn't put the time into using it. And I think with a properly laid out orientation survey and getting everybody in the room to figure out how to answer your questions, that's the only way that we can do this. I'm a big fan of that, of the orientation survey and then establishing your own, your reference set of your key minerals, rocks, whatever, all those things, no matter what you're doing. Totally. Because honestly, I think that it's all about what the goals of your study for and how it's going to help you mine more effectively. So the only way you can get to that point is by having your in-house champion and designing a good orientation survey to answer your specific questions. What's the big win when we get it all right? I think the big win here is that our two chemical mineralogical assets, they're not drains on our capex that we're using, like they're assets, they get established into workflows. And so whether that's in exploration and mining, metallurgy, remediation, this is going to help us explore and mine more efficiently in a more sustainable way. So understanding our geochemistry mineralogy, it's essential for this because we're not actually mining copper, gold, lithium. We're mining rocks and these guys are complicated and they're messy. So the more that we know, the more sustainable our future is. And I would just say to everybody out there, don't be scared to reject dogma because coming from a place of knowledge is is infinitely more powerful. And that's really the big win.
We've seen spectroscopy and geochemistry in action with Sebastian in Argentina. We've talked about how to calibrate and check our instruments with Sam, but how do we really link the whole rock chemistry with the spectral data sets? And how can we create more powerful alteration models and mineral maps? The obvious person to talk to was Scott Halley. How did you get to be mapping minerals and doing mass balance calculations? Oh, wow. When I was a kid, my grandmother was in a gem club. So on weekends, I used to go out with my grandmother bosking for petrified wood and agates and panning zircons out of the creeks and stuff like that. So I've always been obsessed with mineralogy and rocks. I grew up in Tasmania and I went to Tas Uni. So my honours supervisor at Tas Uni was Mike Solomon. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So at that time, Mike was right into the VMS business. So he was telling us all these stories about sodium depletion in the fall of VMS systems and how to map alteration. He's writing all the chemical reactions for water rock reactions and, and showing how you'd predict the mineralogy. And, and, you know, Tasmania has some great VMS deposits and some fantastic tinned garn systems. So Mike was pretty influential. And after my honours degree, I went to Australian National University to do a PhD on the Mount Bischoff tin deposit which is a dolomite-hosted tin scan, and John Walsh was my PhD supervisor. So for my PhD, I was creating a series of hand-drawn cross-sections of the scan and mapping in all the mineralogical zones within that scan, and then I cooked several thousand fluid inclusions, and I did lots of microprobe analyses, and of course, Being a John Walsh student, I had to create the phase diagrams for all the magnesium fluorosilicates and explain why the zonation was the way it was. So that that was all good fun. And one of the first jobs I had in industry, I was working for a company called Renison Goldfields Consolidated, RGC. And we had a geochemist on staff, a guy named Simon Gatehouse. This is about the time that neutron activation analysis became like a pretty routine method for collecting pathfinder chemistry. So we would get analyses of gold, tungsten, copper, lead, zinc, and then about 20 other elements from neutron activation. And Simon was was a really good mathematician as well. So he was trying to do multivariate analyses from the NAA data. And he decided he needed to write his own software to do the interrogation of the data and did this in his spare time just because he's interested. So he wrote a program that he called Geochemical Analysis System. So the acronym was GAS. Of course. Right. That was GAS. That was the beginning. That was 1990. And then there's a whole series of mergers and acquisitions and takeovers and and wheeling and dealing. And the right to commercialize that software went to a geochemistry consulting company called IO Global. So it became IO GAS. So I've been playing with that stuff for 30 years. And initially, we only used that multi-element geochemistry on soil samples. So we were pretty much making proxies for for geology maps just based on immobile trace elements in soils. Right. And it was just spectacular. And I I guess by early 2000s, we started getting ICP AES data, most commercially available then. And then suddenly we had all of the major elements in our routine assay. So once we had ICP AES with a four-acid digest, we would get analyses for aluminium, calcium, potassium, iron, 
sodium, magnesium, sulfur, etc. So all of those sodium depletion maps that Mike Solomon used to draw for VMS systems, we could suddenly get that out of our routine assay data. So everything just blew up. I mean, the amount of information and what you could try and accomplish with all that data. Yeah, it's all about technology, isn't it? Like as the technology improves, we get more and more and more information. And suddenly these things that you used to pick visually, you could fly with numeric data. So then it it wasn't relying on the logging skill of individuals. Like there's no operator bias anymore. It doesn't matter who looked at the data, the answers were always the same, right? So we started constructing these diagrams based on ratios of major elements that reflected the stoichiometry of the minerals. So we could suddenly start to quantify how much of the feldspar had been converted to micas, or we could quantitatively distinguish between albite and K-feldspar and alteration systems. We could work out how much quartz, you know, how much quartz was in the rock. And then I guess by 2006, 2008 thereabouts, people were starting to do this routinely on every drill hole through an entire ore body. So instead of using this alteration mineralogy as a vectoring tool in exploration, suddenly we could build quantitative 3D models of mineralogy for entire mineral deposits. And then the applications of that are just blossoming. I don't think we've even actually appreciated everything that we can get out of that data and the models. Yeah. It seems that maybe because there's so much, there's still a, an oversimplification sometimes, or a, we always have to lump things back together, right? So, you know, you see all the detail and then you just go, no, we're going to lump that because that makes that easier. Yeah. Well, yes, yes and no, but it, it's, I think everybody creates an alteration model for a different reason, right? Yep. Yep. So what are what are your reasons for alteration models? Well, if you're an exploration geologist, you know that every hydrothermal system is chemically zoned. Every system is zoned. And the, the mineralogical and chemical zoning reflects temperature, pH, and water-rock ratios. So if you have a few scattered data points around the system, you can work out what is more proximal, what is more distal, and which way you should be going to collar your next drill hole. If you're a metallurgist, we know that every single ore body is heterogeneous. There are variations within the ore body that relate to things other than just grade. And so right. you have to dig up the rock, you have to crush it, you have to grind it, you have to liberate the mineral grains. And the way that any rock crushes and grinds depends on what the gang mineralogy is. So if you can map the variability in gang mineralogy and you know where that's distributed in 3D space, then you can start making predictions about how your ore body is going to perform. So if you're in a porphyry system, 0.5% copper is not equivalent everywhere in the ore body. There'll be some parts of the ore body that have a stronger argillic overprint, for example, where you need half the amount of power to grind the rock and your mill throughput rate and your cash flow is going to be way higher because of that. So we can log that visually or you can log it with a spectrometer, but it's still not quantitative. No, absolutely. So what I'm trying to do now is that if I can combine the four acid digest ICP chemistry with the spectra, I can define the mineralogy, but I can make it quantitative. And because we're getting those analyses on every meter of core that goes into calculating the resource block model, for every meter of core, we have a measured copper grade, we'll have a measured sulfur grade, we'll have a measured moly content. But I can do the mass balance calculation and put in percentage of quartz, percentage of feldspar, percentage of mica, 
and I can interpolate that in the same way that we model the copper grades so I can put the mineral percentages into every single ore block. That is very cool. Is it really critical when doing this kind of work? What kind of data or how the data is collected or the volume? Can you can you elaborate a bit on what you think best practices for a better word would be? I think it's really, really important to collect good quality data really early on in the program. Right. That would be the key, I think, for anybody not to cut corners at the beginning. I think it doesn't matter how good you are at logging like the best loggers in the world will miss things. I am absolutely convinced that we can see things in the geochemistry that you cannot recognize visually. So part of that is about correctly identifying rock types or not so much rock types, but the compositions of rocks. If we use immobile trace elements, like things that do not move around during hydrothermal operation, you can learn all sorts of things about magmatic compositions and fractionation processes, etc., or provenance of sediments, things that you will not be able to recognise visually. So if you've got really good 4-acid digest ICP MS geochemistry on one of the early holes you start off with in a drilling program, you can go back, and this is the really important step that people don't do, once you have the assays, you can go back to the drill core. Right? Yeah. So you can track something like titanium or niobium or thorium down a hole, and you can see whether where there are step changes in the abundances of those elements that will coincide with the lithological contact. Right. I just look for where the signal changes and find the contact and train yourself to recognize what happened in the rock. You know, why did that signal change? And train yourself to identify what the different lithologies are. Because if you do that on the first hole, yeah. then your logging of subsequent holes will be much improved. Right? And you won't Absolutely. have this process where you go back and re-log. Yep. Right? So learn how to log at the beginning to pick the right lithologies and then use the major elements. Like I've got a, a series of standard diagrams that use based on the stoichiometry of common alteration minerals. So you can start reaction trends and alteration mineralogy from whole rock chemistry and make sure you're picking the right kinds of fields. Make sure you're recognising the absolute abundance of anhydrite, etc. Right? Things that are difficult to recognise in the core, you can use the whole rock chemistry to um, help identify that right from the beginning. And then you know, obviously with the SWIR, you're going to be mapping changes in mica chemistry, changes in chloride chemistry, et cetera. So collect that kind of data early on, but spend a few extra dollars and get the best quality data you can get. And make sure that all the information feedback loops are there and whatever team you have is communicating. Yeah. So one of the weaknesses in what we do, I think, is that the junior geologists will be out logging and they'll be recording everything that they can see. Right. The core scan will probably work independently. So the technicians will, you know, will scan the, the core trays, send the data off. Body remote will interpret the squiggly lines in terms of mineralogy and the, the minerals they put in their mineral matching library may or may not be correct. Yep. And more often than not, people won't validate that against what was actually observed in the core. The best way to validate the core scan data or the ACERIS results is actually to put the mineralogy from the SWIR data into the geochem plot. So I would make something like potassium over aluminium plotted against sodium over aluminium 
and then coloured by the, the relative retributions or the relative point counts for each particular mineral. And if something's been misidentified, you can see where it turns up on those geochem plots. Like it's a pretty neat way to validate the data. And then the core will get cut and sampled and sent off to the assay laboratory. And more often than not, when the assays come back, nobody walks back down along the drill hole and compares the chemistry with what they've observed in the core. So all of these different streams of data collection kind of running independently. Right. And our models would be so much better if we merged those observations and measurements and made a coherent story out of it. That's something that does not happen very well. No, I can see that. And it, it just makes so much sense to be bringing them back together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you've laid down a, a challenge to folks to get their data integration acts together. Yeah. Like we do a fantastic job of validating analytical results for the metals that we're trying to recover. Right. So if you're looking at copper or gold, there'll be excruciating processes for validating the data and making sure you've got accurate analyses for copper and gold. When it comes to all the other bits of data we collect, we don't know how to validate it properly. So it it just never happens. So I I know there's a lot of stuff that is misidentified from SWIR data, um, particularly where you have mixed mineral signals in the SWIR. Absolutely. Resolving those mixed signals is is not trivial. Right. I mean, so standard practice for me was always to establish reference data, mineral data sets for each project. So we knew what the range of minerals were and we knew what the range of mineral mixes were that would be most likely. And then, of course, going back into your identification, then you're using those. If you're using an automated identification, then you're using those references that you have already validated. That's right. And it it does require somebody getting hold of the interpreted mineralogy and going back to the drill core to check and see that it matches with what you've observed on the core. Right. And it's the same with assay data, with four assets digest ICP data. Every chemical analysis you ever get from the laboratory is wrong. Every assay is wrong. It's just that some are more wrong than others. (laughs) So we try to validate copper and gold or lead and zinc, whatever it is. But there's a whole bunch of other things there that we just we just accept that they're true. The four acid digest usually gets close to a complete digestion, but it's never a complete digestion. Right. And every assay laboratory has a different protocol for applying their four acid digestion process. Right. So you could send the same powder to 10 different laboratories and you will get 10 different answers. And it's not because of the way they've analysed the sample. It's because of the way they've dissolved it. So there will be differences in aluminium and titanium and niobium, especially in zirconium and in chrome. And people are just not aware of it. They'll get the results back and they just act like it's all true. So is that a concern if you stick with the same lab? Or what does somebody sending that those rocks out for analysis need to worry about? I would definitely, definitely suggest that you stick to the same lab and the same analytical method throughout the life of a project. Right. Even if it's wrong, right? Because if you change laboratories, if if you're using some of that four acid digest suite of elements other than copper, lead, zinc, gold, if you change labs or methods, you will get a difference in the results. You get a mismatch in your data. 
And the same holds for spectrometers. If you can stick to the same system, the same unit throughout your project, or if you can't, then make sure you calibrate them against each other. Because if you are mapping those, those illite compositions, they can vary from instrument to instrument. Yeah. So the other thing I was going to say then, if we're comparing SWIR results from one place to another, mm-hmm. I, I get to see a different data set every week from a mine somewhere in the world where we have you know thousands and thousands and thousands of results. Right. I've got a pretty good collection of drill hole databases from around the planet. And every now and then I'll see a place where they have collected SWIR data using both CoreScan and TerraSpec. So process through the ACERIS method, right. which I think is really, really good. I, I love the ACERIS stuff. So from time to time, I have paired the ACERIS results where they've measured something from course rejects against the course scan. And it's pretty obvious that the processing algorithms between the two methods are quite different. Yes. Right. There's a real mismatch in how they resolve mineral mixtures and how they extract spectral scalars. And it seems like there's a fundamental difference in the way they interpret mineral solid solutions. And one of them is right and one of them is wrong. And I've never heard anybody else even question that. They just get the data back and they assume that it is true. Actually, what you're getting is not the data. You're getting an interpretation of the data. One of the shortfalls in the interpretation of spectral data is that we have not done enough work to correlate solid solution mineralogy with spectral signals. Yeah, the work is sketchy. The work is sketchy, and we're collecting data at different scales. We're not comparing apples with apples. So if I give you an example, if you consider chloride, right? In chloride, we have a substitution of iron and magnesium. Yep. But we also have a Shermac substitution. So we can vary the amount of aluminium in the chloride lattice but that, that is coupled with an exchange for silica and iron or magnesium. So you put in two aluminiums and you take out one silica and one divalent cation. And every single mineral species becomes more aluminous as a hydrothermal fluid becomes more acidic. So the aluminium content in the chlorides is kind of really interesting if you can get at it easily. Right. When you look at the stuff that, that we talk about, with chloride chemistry using the spectral signal as a proxy, we only ever talk about substituting iron for magnesium. Uh, and we relate that to a shift in the absorption feature at 2250 nanometers. Right. What happens when the aluminium content changes? Well, I think we could ask whether what we're seeing is actually the iron magnesium substitution or we're actually seeing aluminum. Certainly in illites, that's the way when I worked with Phoebe Hoff, that was the way she viewed it. And she would always argue with people. She would say that we're actually seeing the aluminum content change, not, you know, a one for one for all the cations. Yeah. So, you know, what what happens in chloride? Yeah. So I think there's something we need to do, Anne. We, We need to find some suitable kind of test locations where we get really homogenous and pervasive alteration so that you're not worried about small-scale variability. Right? But we need something that's got really homogenous and pervasive alteration so that if you take a point analysis, it will be representative of a large volume of drill core. So then we can compare a, a TerraSpec halo result with, you know, on a scale of a centimetre, 
with a, a millimetre or sub-millimetre scale microprobe analysis. But we, we need to look at all of the solid solution substitutions that can occur in white micas and chlorites and clays and try and resolve it in terms of how the spectral signal varies. Because then if we can crack the code for how the spectral signal varies as a function of solid solution chemistry, mineral chemistry, there is so much more information we can get from our SWIR data. And we've just never done the calibration test to, to know what those correlations are. And you need to look at a lot of different systems and a lot of end-member kind of signals so that you know what the range of results is going to be. But that, that's a real big gap in our knowledge. We've been collecting this, you know, spectral data for 30, 40 years, but we haven't done the background work to know how to interpret it properly. No, I agree. But I think right now we're just too bamboozled by these lovely pixel maps of the core and all the colors yeah. and the textures and think, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, buy that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really motivated by this, and because when I go to do the, these mass balance calculations, yeah. I need to know the variability in the chloride and white mica solid solutions has a really big impact on how the mass balance calculations work. No, absolutely. Yeah, that brings it back full circle. Yeah. If I put in the wrong average chloride composition or white mica composition and I get the aluminium content wrong, then it throws out the mass balance on every other mineral that I'm going to calculate. So I've got an ulterior motive. Here's another thought. A lot of the stuff we're doing is driven by technology. Right? So we are building better and better gadgets and electronics is getting better and better. And the quality of the data we collect is absolutely awesome. But the way we interpret it is lagging behind, I think. The problem is not the quality of the data, it's the quality of the interpretation. If we change the way we interpret data, we can have a step change in the quality of the information we're putting into our models. Many thanks to Sebastian Benavides, Sam Schur, and Scott Halley for taking the time to talk to us and share your insights and knowledge. In the next episode, we're going to talk about one of the most important tools in exploration, drilling. We look forward to having Aisha Ahmed back as your host. Meanwhile, all the episodes are available at segweb.org slash podcasts and most other places you get your podcasts. For information on new releases, be sure to follow the SEG and ALS Goldspot on their social media channels. This episode was produced by your host with support from our production team, Aisha Ahmed, Britt Plumel, Hallie Keevil, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Catch you next time.